Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Rebecca F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, August 4th, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are starting at the beginning of Chapter 8, Two Wives, on page 104. Today's readers are as follows. Reading the 12 Steps will be Carolyn S., Reading the Twelve Traditions will be Susan M., and reading the text will be Susie K., Helena, and Rick B. The share ID for Sunday, August 3rd, is 6713. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating, We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain, from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Carolyn S. to read the OA 12 steps. Hi, this is Carolyn S., uh, the 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Pass. Thank you, Carolyn S. I will now ask Susan M. to read the OA 12 Traditions. This is Susan M., our recovered compulsive eater. Number one, our common welfare should come first. 
personal recovery depends on OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, film, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these principles, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. My pass. Thank you, Susan M. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery. Do you mute your phone, please, if it's unmuted, star one. Described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. While we typically read a paragraph or two at a time from the literature, for the next three chapters we are going to read approximately one page at a time. Then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book at the beginning of Chapter 8. Two Wives, on page 104, from the top. I will now ask Susie Kay to get us started by reading from the title of this chapter, including the footnote, through four paragraphs ending with, To Be Overcome. Susie Kay, are you there? I'm here. I thought it was unmuted. Susie Kay, recovered compulsive overeater in Maine. 
chapter 8 to wives, and then the asterisk at the, the footnote, written in 1939, when there were few women in an AA, this chapter assumes that the alcoholic in the home is likely to be the husband, but many of the suggestions given here may be adapted to help the person who lives with a woman alcoholic, whether she is still drinking or is recovering in AA. A further source of help is noted on page 121. With a few exceptions, our book thus far has spoken of men, but that, but what we have said applies quite as much to women. Our activities in behalf of women who drink are on the increase. There is every evidence that women regain their health as re- readily as men if they try our suggestions. But for every man who drinks, others are involved. The wife who trembles in fear of the next debauch the mother and father who see their son wasting away. Among us are wives, relatives, and friends whose problem has been solved, as well as as some who have not yet found a happy solution. We want the wives of Alcoholics Anonymous to address the wives of men who drink too much. What they say will apply to nearly everyone bound by ties of blood or affection to an alcoholic. As wives of Alcoholics Anonymous, we would like you to feel that we understand as perhaps few can. We want to analyze mistakes we have made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. And I'm going to pass. Thank you, Susie Kay. Who would like to share on what Susie Kay just read? This is Janice. Hi, Janice. Well, good morning. Good morning to you, Rebecca, and everyone. Janice M. from Massachusetts. Okay, now this could be a little bit confusing if you haven't really studied this chapter before. You may think um, that this is for the wives who are the alcoholics. Well, they could be, but this is to the wives of anyone affected by alcoholism. In other words, to the wives, it would be the husband. So the wives are talking about the alcoholic husband. Um, You know, alcoholism affects everyone. This is what they're talking about here. They did, in the first sentence, you know, it talked about, yeah, well, men. Well, naturally, you know, most men were alcoholics at that time, but there are women. So you see husbands to wives. Um, they're talking about the wives of alcoholics that are affected by their alcoholism, by the um, alcoholics, uh, by the husband's alcoholism. And what they're, what they're telling us here that um, everyone is affected. Once there's an alcoholic in the home, everyone is affected. It could be a husband, it could be a son, it could be a relative. If you're connected in any way, we are affected. Um, I know I had it in my family, so I understand. But the point here is that these wives are going to tell us, share their experience, their strength and their hope, how there is hope. Don't be doomed. Don't don't give up, you know. They're going to tell us what mistakes they made and how we, if we're a wife of an alcoholic or a mother, what we can do. We can't make the alcoholic change because we know we're powerless. I mean, you know, we know for ourselves as compulsive overeaters that nobody 
Now, I don't care how nice they are or how, whatever they do. It's not going to change, but they're going to get feel better if they apply the same principles, we'll see, as the alcoholic did in all these cha- in the former chapters. So we want to analyze our mistakes, what mistakes they had in the home, and, and give us hope, hope that there's going to be no situation. I don't care how down in the bottom is the alcoholic. They're giving us hope. They're going to tell us the mistakes they made and what they did to change that would make the situation better. And I think it's a great chapter for that. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Janice. Would anyone else like to share on this page? This is Katie G. from Boston. Hi, Katie G. Go go ahead. Good morning, Rebecca. This is Katie G., compulsive overeater recovered from Boston, Mass. And um, I guess what really struck me this morning um, was before I did the work and before I got abstinent, um, I should say before I got abstinent and did the work, um, what was really clear to me was how my eating affected me. Like I was all, I was totally aware that, um, you know, and when I came into step one, like, you know, when I put that food in my body, I, I've surrendered. Like I now have an understanding that I have an allergy of the body. I put certain foods into my body. It sets up an uncontrollable craving for more and what the repercussions are from me, for me, right? Like my selfishness, it takes me out of work. It takes me out of opportunities. I see that. What I love about this chapter is in a very clear um, manner, it, it talks to me about for every man who drinks, others are involved, the wife who trembles in fear over the next debauch, the mother and father who see their son wasting away. And specifically, like when I went to make my amends and when I think of other people, um, you know, sometimes people will ask me, like, how, do your, how did your family respond to your, does your family respond to you being involved in in a 12-step recovery program and, you know, over by, by doing the steps and by talking to others, um, I've realized that actually my disease has had a significant impact on my family and around other people, that there's an insanity about my behaviors and that it's not going to take just one 24 hours for me to say, for everybody to forget what happened and how many years my family spent watching me wasting away and that there can be a lot of like subtle mental insanity associated with the unpredictability of of my disease and and can I be compassionate and you know when I went to my parents I know we're not on step nine but this awareness of how my disease impacts other people is in direct opposition to my selfishness right like I never thought like well how could anyone be hurt by what I'm doing, but it's telling me, yeah, you know, people saw you wasting away, and that has an impact. Um, so I'm really grateful for this chapter because it helps me go to my family and, and say, you know what, I was irregardless of, you know, in my mind, irregardless of the kind of parents they were, how was I as a daughter? How did it feel watching me waste away? How did it feel not knowing how I'm going to show up, when I'm going to show up, and what what is the what is the solution? Um, and and what I love about this chapter is it also outlines how to how I can interact with 
in a healthy manner people who are active. And I have many people who are active in addiction in my life, um, you know, both in program and out of program. So this is a phenomenal chapter. Open your ears. It's got a lot to teach us about um, how to interact with others, about that long period of reconstruction that we talk about in another part of the book, um, and about giving people the space and time. Trust takes time. Um, to build, and I'm just so grateful. It is such a privilege on a Monday morning to wake up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and on fire with this privilege to go out and engage with the world in a healthy, unselfish manner. And with that, I do pass. Thank you, KDG. Would anyone else like to share on this page? Kim. Hi, Kim. This is Katie. I heard Kim, Katie F, and was there a third voice? Leah. And Leah. Kim, go right ahead. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovery compulsive over here. Now, uh, I think what I just want to kind of slam home what Katie talked about, because I think that, you know, the root of our problem is selfish and self-centeredness, and I think as compulsive overeaters, we often like to dismiss this chapter because, of course, alcoholics affect their family. They're so violent, all these different things going on. We're just compulsive overeaters. I mean, we just hurt ourselves. We, you know, we sit in our house and we binge, and our families aren't affected. But I think it's important for us to understand how much we do affect the family. I think just monetarily, the amount of money that I had to spend on clothing because I was going from a size 20 down to a size 14, up to a size 20, down to a size 8, up to a size 24, that money could have gone towards the family. Let's think about all the medical consequences that our disease has, the amount of money that's needed to be spent for diabetic medication, high blood pressure medication, and cholesterol, and going to doctors, and that money is taken away from the family. What about the fact that, you know, maybe because of obesity or just because of our, our absolute way we cannot handle things, that we're not going to our kids' baseball games because we don't want to go on the, the bleachers. Or maybe we're limited in what vacations we can go to because we're not comfortable being on a plane. You know, what about the way that people walk on eggshells around us because they don't know if today is the day that we're dieting and going to be freaking out or the day that we're going to be binging and we're going to be alone in our rooms crying. You know, I, I, my family suffered from compulsive overeating even though they weren't compulsive overeating. You know, and we have to look at that. This is what this is telling us, not to go and, and, and talk about our issues with our family members eating, but let's look at how our eating, our disease, hurt our families, how it stripped them of being able to be a family unit. That is what this chapter is about. And if we downplay that, because we are selfish and self-centered to the core, then we're not seeing the true damage. We're not going to be able to, to see, as Katie was talking about, with our amends, is, is the fact that I've taken money away from my family. I've taken time away from my family. I've taken sanity away from my family. And it wasn't their decision. It was my decision. This is a self-imposed crisis that unfortunately touches the lives of everyone that I touch. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Katie F. Good morning. This is Katie F., a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. Um, and I 
wanted to focus on this sentence. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. You know, I think um, this is inviting us to identify in instead of identifying out. You know, I was talking to someone the other day and I was telling her all different things that have happened in my um, life this summer that have not been, you know, picnics and uh, serene walks on the beach. And she, and it all had to do with my family. And she said, um, you know, and, and through all that, you stayed abstinent? And I said, yes, you know, I, that's what I do now. But there was a time when I came into these rooms that I thought I will never be able to be around my family because they are all about food. That's all they want to do is eat. That's all they talk about is when are we going to eat? What are we going to have next? And how am I, as an out-of-control compulsive overeater, going to then back into that situation as a uh, recovered person and not, you know, back into that same pattern? How am I going to stop falling into these same patterns with my family? And this chapter is talking about how that family felt being around me. And, you know, there isn't anything out there that um, someone can tell me that I can say, well, yeah, you're right. That is too hard to overcome. You know, you're, you're never going to recover because it's just too bad. It's just too awful. You are just too terminally unique, and God's never heard of such a thing, and, and God can't help you. You know, I, I never have to say that to someone because I have seen just lives that were just completely uh, torn apart from this disease put back together. And people move on, they pick up, and they, uh, they get to go on and have a full and productive and happy life. And so I just am so grateful that we don't, you know, as um, Katie said, that we, you know, can wake up on Monday morning not hungover from a, a weekend of binging and get on this phone line and hear how other people, um, their families have changed too. And I'm, I'm grateful, and I'll pass. Thank you, KDF. Leah. Thank you, Rebecca, for your service. Good morning, everybody. But for every man who drinks, others are involved. Um, yes, you know, oftentimes we think of, of the alcoholic, you know, ripping through, roaring through the lives of, their family members and others, but we think compulsive overeating, you know, perhaps doesn't uh, doesn't affect the family. However, that that is not the case. You know, on page 18, it reminds us if a person has cancer, all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness, for with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers brings misunderstanding, fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, etc. And that is so true. You know, we often think that compulsive overeating does not affect the family. But, you know, when we are compulsive overeating, we are withdrawing from family activities, and that certainly affects the family. You know, our preoccupation with binging or with, uh, you know, some new weight loss uh, method or remedy 
affects the family because we are not emotionally or physically available for the family. Uh, you know, we refrain from emotional and physical intimacy often. Uh, you know, if there's been weight gain, um, we will not have uh, physical relations with a spouse or, you know, uh, our partner. Uh, we're irresponsible. We're unreliable. We're undependable. We're inconsistent. We're unpredictable. <laughs> I mean, I know this just because of my own life and certainly because of working with other people. You know, we isolate. We're depressed. We have this dark cloud over our heads. There's financial unmanageability. We're spending a lot of money on our binge foods or spending a lot of money on diet remedies or ripping through, uh, you know, our finances in other ways or not able to pay the bills because we're in such a stupor. We're not paying things on time. We're not responsible. I mean, all these things affect the family. We affect our mothers because our mothers worry about us. We affect our fathers. We affect our spouses. We affect our children, employers, our friends. My friends were very worried about me. My mother, you know, very, very worried about me uh, in this disease of compulsive overeating and the other facets that I tried out. So to think that this only affects ourselves is, uh, you know, just being um, in, you know, complete denial of the reality. The terror and bewilderment, bewilderment and frustration and despair that defines um, an a compulsive overeater in his or her bags and boxes engulfs the family as well. And that was something I had to take a good and hard look at when I was in my recovery process, is look at how this disease has affected everybody. Not only had it worn me out, you know, the madness and mayhem of compulsive overeating truly, truly wore me out. It exhausted me, but it also exhausted my parents, and it also wore out my husband, and it also concerned and wore out my friends. And those relationships, there were food stains all over my relationships due to my compulsive overeating. And I had to take a look at that. And I had to be honest about that. On the other hand, it says here, as wives of Alcoholics Anonymous, we would like you to feel that we understand as perhaps few can. You know, these women, uh, these loved ones, uh, they too acknowledge their problem they had a solution, and there was a plan of action, and they got to the other side. And they, too, now carry a message of depth and weight with facts about themselves. And that's this chapter. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. Did anyone else want to share on this page? This is Larry. I heard Larry and another voice. Sarah? Sarah. Judith. And Judith. Was there anyone else? Okay, Larry, go right ahead. Thank you. Good morning, Larry. Recovered uh, compulsive reader from Chicago. Um, boy, what do I? What would I have to say about you know a chapter to the wives? You know, but you know, um, you know, had had my wives, two of them, <laughs> had they been able to read this uh, this chapter, you know, perhaps they would have understood. Um, of course, they you know understood me a little bit better when I was in the throes of this disease. I don't know that it would have saved the marriages. That's for sure. I uh, destroyed those, but I think it would um, you know probably now give them understanding somehow. I, I I found my way to this program and this solution. Um, yeah, it, it it affects the family as we've heard already. You know, um, 
what was I like? Well, you know, um, you know, I can read to you exactly what I was like um, on page 21. <laughs> Here's the my story. Here's the fellow who's been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He's often perfect, uh, perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, but in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. You know, it goes on. I guess the point is that, you know, as I was, you know, this tornado destroying relationships with wives, with, you know, with, with other family members, with friends, self-isolating, hiding, avoiding, um, just in misery, um, you know, I, I was a pretty swell guy, you know, on paper and, and thought, you know, I was a pretty swell guy. But everyone around me knew that, uh, that I was disturbed, you know, certainly. You know, Jekyll and Hyde, that described me perfectly. Maybe you can relate to that. So this chapter, again, what, what's beautiful about this chapter is it's, um, it's kind of a precursor to Al-Anon, giving, you know, the, giving the spouse, giving the family a, <clears throat> an understanding, a further understanding of, um, and maybe a hope, you know, cause, um, because today, like yesterday, I, I went to a family event and I'm different. You know, I've had a spiritual awakening. So I'm different. I look different, for one, but that's the least of it. See, I act different. Why? Because my thinking's different. God has changed me. And um, as long as I remain in fit spiritual condition, um, I really am a swell guy. <laughs> you know, I can, I can walk, my walk, my walk, walk, uh, uh, you know, matches my talk talk today. So, um, and that's the gift from Morning, God. I didn't, I didn't do that for myself. God did that for me. Thanks. I'll pass. Thank you, Larry. I hear uh, someone interrupting the line who is unmuted. So please check your phone. Sarah, you are next. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, good morning, Vision, to you. My name is Sarah W. I'm a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. I've been on both sides of this um, this trick. Um, you know, I, I am the compulsive overeater, and I'm also the other side. I'm the Al-Anon. So, um, you know, I, the last little sentence, um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where we stopped, but it says... Um, the feeling that no situation is too difficult to be helped and no unhappiness too great to be overcome is directly out of an Al-Anon um, preamble that they do. And, um, you know, the thing that comes into my mind about this is that, um, you know, the pain of watching um, a loved one, not only in the throes of disease, but the anger, you know, and I've been on both sides of that too, you know, being angry. You know, I was a rager. And um, and I think oftentimes alcoholics are ragers. Um, you know, you question. You know, is it me? Have I caused this? I mean, that's that's the wife's position. You know, if there was something that I could do to make it right, and then all those things that the desperation that we try to do to make it right. Um, 
and uh, you know, I think um, what they're talking about is we want to analyze mistakes we have made. Um, you know, uh, when you have a loved one, whether it be a child, a spouse, a very good friend, a parent that is in the throes of disease, and you're watching them do this thing, uh, there's a very helpless feeling amongst uh, amongst us because we question, um, like I said, if we caused it. You know, there's a saying in Al-Anon, you know, um, uh, I didn't, I can't cure it, I didn't cause it, and I can't control it. And I think that that is so apropos uh, um, when anybody is addicted to anything that the loved ones keep that in the back of their mind. But, um, you know, thank God that uh, Lois and Ann um, stepped up and, um, and that Bill was smart enough to realize that this was such an important part of recovery, that if the support of the wives uh, was not there for the alcoholic, um, and, and my understanding is that they, they had a huge um, impact on the, on the writings of the big book also, uh, but, but that if they didn't have this, um, this connection with um, the loved ones of the people that were the addicts, you know, that, that how could, you know, it is a family disease. You know, ours is a family disease. That, that, you know, compulsive overeating is a family disease. It's not just a disease of one person. And so uh, what we do has an effect, you know, triplefold. Not only does it affect my husband, my children, but my grandchildren, their, their husbands and wives, you know, uh, you know, it spreads out to such a huge, enormous impact. You know, there's a huge picture. So I need to remember that and, um, and have compassion for people and, um, you know, not be all about what I want and what's um, the most important thing to me and to remember that, um, that I affect a lot of people in my behaviors. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Judith, you're next. Judith, are you there? Judith? Well, maybe we'll catch Judith uh, next time. Is that Judith? Okay, we'll we'll ask if Judith is free after um, Helena uh, reads. So, Helena, could you please continue the reading with the next page, beginning at the bottom of 104 with We Have Traveled a Rocky Road through the last paragraph on 105, ending with Self-Pity Made Them Killjoys? Helena, can you hear me? Good morning. This is Helena. Can you hear me? Yes, Helena, I hear you. We have traveled a rocky road. There is no mistake about that. We have had long rendezvous with hurt, pride, frustration, self-pity, misunderstanding, and fear. These are not pleasant companions. We have been driven to maudlin sympathy, to bitter resentment, 
Some of us veered from extreme to extreme, ever hoping that one day our loved ones would be themselves once more. Our loyalty and the desire that our husbands hold up their heads and be like other men have begotten all sorts of predicaments. We have been unselfish and self-sacrificing. We have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husband's reputations. We have prayed. We have begged. We have been patient. We have struck out viciously. We have run away. We have been hysterical. We have been terror-stricken. We have sought sympathy. We have had retaliatory love affairs with other men. Our homes have been battlegrounds many an evening. In the morning, we have kissed and made up. Our friends have counseled chucking the men, and we have done so with finality, only to be back in a little while, hoping, always hoping. Our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. We have believed them when no one else could or would. Then, in days, weeks, or months, a fresh outburst. We seldom had friends at our homes, never knowing how or when the men of the house would appear. We could make few social engagements. We came to live almost alone. When we were invited out, our husbands sneaked so many drinks that they spoiled the occasion. If, on the other hand, they took nothing, the self-pity made them kill joys. So I'd like to share just a little bit about this. Um, it is interesting how the um, first 100 recognized that this is a family disease and that it affects people all around us. When I was selfishly in my own disease, I only had anger at my mother, at friends, my sister, my people who teased me. I only had anger at the way they treated me. I had no thought for how this could affect them too. And when I needed to make amends in my uh, step eight and nine, I had to come to realize that I had hurt them in many ways. And um, it's interesting, I have to keep my mind always on the fact that this is addressed to the person who loves uh, someone with an addiction, but that I am the addict. And yet some of these situations that are described in these paragraphs that I have read, some of these feelings are feelings that I too have had you know, long rendezvous with hurt, pride, frustration, self-pity, misunderstanding, and fear. I had those too. And this line, I underlined it, hoping, ever hoping, that one day our loved ones would be themselves once more. You know, our loved ones wanted us restored to sanity in the same way that I needed to be restored to sanity, and I had no idea what sanity was. I had never been sane when it came to food. Uh, what I hear is that our loved ones wanted us to be what God had in mind for us when he created us. That's my definition of sanity. Um, our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. Wasn't that me? Over and over, every Monday, I started a new diet. I was done forever. Every time I had a binge, I was done forever. So there are many things I can identify with and keep in mind, and I passed. Thank you, Helena. Um, Judith, are you available? Did you see Hi, this is Deborah. I'd like to share. One this second, Sally. Deborah. And Sally, one sec. Judith, are you there? Okay. Deborah, go right ahead. This just so much reminds me of um, when we talk about, I think it's in the doctor's opinion that we cannot tell the truth from the false. And the terror and bewilderment when we're in the disease and how it affects our family. 
I think it's very it's important. I know, especially for me, it was I could not until I started doing the steps. I could not realize that I was actually mixing up truth with false. And when you're a mom or your dad and you're leading a family, that is, you're just putting so many people in situations that's so unnecessary because you're making decisions, life decisions, based on a, a falsehood because of this disease that just is so much more than just food. But um, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Deborah. Sally? Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, Edition, for you. It's Sally A. in South Jersey, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Yeah, this is really uh, fabulous to read this. Um, I would wanted to speak specifically to uh, page 105 where it says, uh, it's the very first paragraph, it says, Our Loyalty. And then it goes on to say, we have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husband's reputation. We have prayed, we have run away, we have been terror-stricken. All down the page, it describes a situation. And for myself, when I read this, I am reminded of my childhood. And I just marvel that these are things that I did for my mother, my mother who was a compulsive overeater and a bulimic and who was nuts as I became nuts, when it talks about our loyalty and the desire that our husbands hold up their heads, it reminds me of my loyalty to my mother and the lies that I told to protect my family. And it reminds me of a whole way of living in my childhood and the fact that I couldn't bring home friends to my home because I never knew what my mother was going to look like that day, what she was going to behave like, whether my home was going to be a battleground, as this, as this page talks about. And um, while we are instructed to keep our eyes on ourselves and not to look at somebody else, but this is what shaped me to become who I became. My mother's addiction, my mother's bulimia shaped my addiction and my bulimia. And I, I look at this page and I'm... I find myself struggling with with um, amlopia is what they call this double vision. I look at the page and I I see my childhood, and I look at the page and I see my adult life and what my children probably were were bearing. And I I'm reminded of things that happened in my children's lives, things that I did that were so dysfunctional, things that I did in in their schools that I did that were dysfunctional that. I thought I was putting my best foot forward when, in fact, I looked probably nuts to to everyone else. And to me, it's a memory of craziness. And at the same time that I'm reminded of my own crazy behavior as a mom for my children, I'm reminded of my own childhood and the crazy stuff that I witnessed. And so as I read these pages, it's it's just very, it's not just eye-opening, but I know that what they're giving us here is a picture of dysfunctional, that I know there has to be somebody else on this line like me who has that same double vision of, of um, wow, this reminds me of my childhood and, wow, this re- reminds me of my own life as a mom and my own crazy, crazy behavior in addiction. And my addiction form was food and, and bulimia and, and anorexia. And um, it's it makes my heart race uh, and... Um, I'm happy that we're here. I'm happy that we're looking at this. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Sally. 
Did anyone else want to share on this paragraph? I mean, this page or paragraphs within Hi, this is Linda D. in Connecticut. I'd like to share, if I may. Yes, Linda D., go ahead. This is Dana in Virginia. Oh, before you go, Linda, who is from Virginia? Virginia? Jaina. Jaina. And then someone from New York. Who was from New York? Sheila H. from New York. Sheila H. Okay, Linda, go ahead. I'm uh, like frothing at the bit, whatever that expression is, champing at the bit. There we go. I'm Linda D. from Connecticut, and I am so awed to be recovered from compulsive overeating one day at a time. What a sensational meeting. I've been in OA almost 32 years. I have never heard the kind of sharing on this chapter that I'm hearing today. It's mind-bogglingly great. And And I thank you from the bottom of my heart because it expands my understanding. And someone was just, Sally was just saying, and I know we don't cross talk. Okay. Someone just said... Um, or I heard, um, about this double vision stuff. It's absolutely true. I And it's giving me not only compassion for other people, it's giving me compassion for my childhood, which is appropriate because I have to forgive me and forgive others. It just makes the whole planet, because I deal with a lot of addictive people, they're Everywhere they're on my bus, they're my clients, they're everywhere. And of course, in my family and my my parents, and I've even affected my animals. That's not nothing. That's important, and so forth. But it's not guilt. It's compassion. This is a disease. Oh my lord! I, I'm I'm just so grateful to be saved one day at a time. Thank you all more than I can say, and I pass. Thank you, Linda D. Jaina? Yes, hello. This is Jaina in from Virginia. I uh, My thoughts aren't terribly clear, but I did want to share because I'm having an awareness here that I think is important. Um, I did relate to the idea of the double vision, but in my case, it's a triple vision that I'm having as I read this. And I'm so grateful that we're talking about it because I don't, I don't know that I could get clarity on reading by myself. Um, my father was an alcoholic, my mother was a rageaholic, and my husband is an alcoholic, and I'm a totally messed up compulsive overeater. Uh, abstinent now for about two and a half weeks because of a vision for you, and I thank you for that. Um, I just wanted to say that... Uh, in my case, what I, what I feel, I see all these things. I was all these terrible things, and I probably still am. But I don't think my family knew why. My family was terribly affected by my overeating. I know it because I became a maniac. And I was a maniac when I was dieting until I got past the crisis phase, at which point I became kind of a normal person for a while. And then I would go into the overeating, and the overeating sometimes would make me seem nicer on the outside, but inside I was full of self-hate. And 
all the isolating, the refusing to participate in family activities. I did all of that. My children were terribly affected by it. It's affected their whole outlook on life, but I don't think they know that it's because I was overeating. I was very, very shrewd about hiding it. Obviously, I got fat, but I didn't overeat in front of people, and I didn't, um, you know, I wasn't, I, I kept myself, it's almost like I had three layers of personality. One layer was this layer that I showed everybody, and it was always an effort to try to be okay. Then there was this totally crazy layer that my husband saw, but not, the children didn't see it. They saw the raging, horribly mean, nasty mother on occasion when I was going crazy, just like I saw my mother do that. But I, don't, I still don't they have any idea it had to do with my eating. So as I think about my family perhaps benefiting from my potential recovery, I'm thinking, you know, I'm wondering to what extent um, I have to talk about this. Um, the, the, the link between my horrible behavior and my horrible attitude and the eating because I don't think they see it. So I just wanted to raise that issue and uh, perhaps other people have thoughts about it. Thank you. Thank you, Jaina. Sheila H. Sheila H. from New York. We can't hear you. Okay, Judith, did you are you on the line? Did you want to share? I'm here. I apologize. Is this Can you hear me now? Sheila? Yes. Yes, go ahead, Sheila. Okay, thank you. I'm having some technical difficulties. I um definitely wanted to share on this. The double vision was a trigger and a push for me and I thank the speaker for saying that. Does it need to be said? Um, this particular, I'm a member of Al-Anon over 22 years, and from the big book, this was really the only thing I looked at, this chapter here, to the wires and to the families afterwards as being a member of Al-Anon. Only further work put me into going through the big book, and never like I'm going through it now. Um, I could definitely identify, coming from generations of alcoholism, the impact that this disease has on the family and the wives. Um, I, too, went to program of recovery because my kids needed one same parent. They were surrounded by crazy, you know, and I spent a lot of time pointing fingers at fathers, mothers, grandparents, uncles. I mean, I just had a long list of family members that suffered from this disease. And going into a 12-step program and talking about family things that was just totally taboo to talk about in public, particularly the people you didn't know, was totally taboo, and this book gave so much hope, so much hope um, to the wives of active alcoholics. I, I can't explain the work that Lois and the contribu- contributions that were made through AA with this, with the Al-Anon program. I wish we had one for OA with the families because you can step. Back, I can step back. I keep it in the eye and see the impact of this disease on on family members, on my own children and what they do and don't do. And so it pushes me to be an example for them because even though I don't pick up a drink or I'm not taking any drugs, overeating, compulsive overeating and acting out with food is the same thing. And it took me many years to realize 
I'm doing the same thing that the person in front of me or next to me or in my family might be doing with alcohol. Very hard pill to swallow and and seeing the impact and not having kids over when I was coming up, not wanting anyone in the house and then seeing my own children going through that. It definitely um, was an eye-opener for me, and I'm grateful for it because now they have a better example. They have sane parents, thank you, God. Both of their parents are in recovery, and we hopefully broke the chain because I can, I've had generations of this disease in my family, and I'm trying to change it one day at a time. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Sheila H. This is Rebecca, and I'd like to share. I'm particularly taken by this last sentence. If, on the other hand, they took nothing, their self-pity made them kill joys. And when I think back on my self-pity and that when I was on a diet, I was a killjoy for my family, um, I am so grateful today that I can live an abstinent, recovered life without being a killjoy. I'm quite the opposite. I'm so full of joy now. This is beyond my wildest dreams, just like it says in the book, that I could not be fat and not be focused on binge foods and whether or not I could be eating them or should be eating them or who's going to see how much I'm going to have or, you know, love the food more than anything else on earth, that I don't have to be that way and I don't have to be in self-pity about it and I'm not a killjoy anymore about it. I'm happy, joyous, and free in my new body and in my new mind and in my new spirit and connection with God and with my fellows and with Mother Nature and with my family and my friends and the people who cross my path. It's it's such a gift. I have so much to be grateful for, and I share this with you to give you hope that if you suffer from self-pity and are a killjoy when you're not in your food or when you are in your food because there's just no um, good solution other than, I believe, this solution, um, which is to work the steps while the food is down and be free of that self-pity and that life of being a killjoy. Um, In addition to that, I was a pusher. You know, I was pushing the binge foods on my family and my friends and um, poisoning them so that I, uh, misery loves company, you know, and that was really all I thought I had to offer the world was um, food, um, sweet food in particular. And um, today I have something more to offer my family and I can be an example, and they don't have to um, wonder, is she, isn't she, will she, won't she, um, what mood is she going to be in, and um, all the mixed messages I used to give about whether or not I was on the wagon, and um, they just keep waiting for the shoe to drop, 
and I think after a number of years now of consistency and uh, working this program, they've come to rely on it with me, and they're not always waiting for when I'm going to blow. Um, with that, I will pass, and we've come to the end of our first hour. So I want to thank everyone who has shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Rick B. please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Good morning, Rick, a recovered compulsive reader. A book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you will find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.